0: Thank you guys. Thank you. Didn't you guys just love Jeanette? <laughs> we just met her a few months ago and immediately just loved her and wanted to be friends with her and we were like, we have got to introduce her to you guys. Thank you so much again just for being here and for sharing your story and for being so authentic and just so generous with it. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm just... Um, so excited about this morning. For anybody who's a regular here, you'll know that we're in the middle of a 10-week series on love and relationships and sexuality. And this is week five, so we're officially like halfway through. So we're doing it. We're getting there. Um, And I'm going to be speaking with Simon this morning on um, um, this part five. I'm super excited because I feel like God's really teaching us um, through this. It feels really practical and it feels like the church desperately needs to learn how to walk in the world that we find ourselves in today, especially in this area of sexuality. I know that um, when my kids started really asking questions... I'm messing with this now, and it's probably not a good idea. (laughs) But when my kids um, started asking questions, um, deeper questions about um, what they were hearing in school and everything, I found that I had some beliefs that I held, and I didn't actually know why I believed them. And so I'm just loving this. I've loved this process of learning and really just loving learning together about all of this. We're always learning in life, aren't we? I mean, I remember when I first moved to the UK, it was a massive learning curve, and um, I was just amazed at how small and quaint everything was, and um, in comparison to my American life before, and the cars were bigger, and the houses were bigger, you know, everything was just bigger, and I absolutely loved it here, but it was just small, <laughs> and I was kind of processing this one day, and I was working in the night shelter at the time, and um And I kind of just blurted out with a tinge of pride, everything's bigger in America. And one of the really quick-witted residents who heard me said, yeah, including the people. (laughs) And I like quickly learned that I needed a bit of an attitude adjustment. You know, we've, we've all got to learn, and we're going to continue our learning this morning, as I said. If you're listening online and you've just started, you just joined us right here in the middle of this series, it's going to be a bit like coming into a cold bath. So you might want to rewind and listen to the previous four um, messages before you start today. But for everybody else in the room, um, we're particularly following on from Simon's um, first two messages in this series. And so I just want to do a quick recap of those two messages um, so that we can continue building on what we've already learned. So in the first message, um, Simon looked at the biblical view of sexuality. The Bible says that sex is sacred, it's a good gift, and is given to us by God. But because we haven't treated it as sacred, um, it's become scarred. And for all of us, um, sex has become um, our sexuality. It, we're, we're all living with the the damage and the pain of the brokenness of sexuality. And because of that, sexuality needs a savior. It's also worth repeating that as Christians, we have a really different sexual ethic to the culture that we that we live in, and that's okay. We're not trying to shove our ethics down anyone else's throats. But when we follow Jesus, he calls us to live a different way, and he empowers us to live that way. In part two, Simon looked at what the Bible says about homosexuality. It was an intense week. I don't know if you remember, but we like sprinted through the key passages in the Bible that talk about this directly. And the conclusions we came to were these, that God designed sex as a precious gift within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman that he loves gay people and that as a church we've got to go out of our way to love gay people too or people who are same-sex attracted. But it also showed that God's not in favor of gay sex or any sex outside of that marriage relationship. That sexual immorality, that's any sexual act- activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, is that God's not in favor of that. And this, this It may be really hard for you to hear today, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more, but God's given us boundaries around his good gifts, and that's a good thing. It's for our benefit. We were once um, house-sitting at someone's house and they had one of those open fireplaces in the lounge and we were all sitting around and we were snuggled up and just enjoying it and suddenly we hear this loud pop and this hot coal just comes jumping out of the fireplace onto the rug in front of the fire and we're all suddenly like out of our blankets and everyone's trying to get the, the coal back into the fire. You know, the fire that warms us also burns us and sex is like that. God puts boundaries around it and like fire, it needs, it needs to be, sex needs to be in the um, safe fireplace of marriage. So this week is following on from all of that. How do we live this out? If we're convinced that the Bible is God's blueprint for life, and I am, and that it shows us a different way of sexuality than our culture, how do we walk in this way in, um, when, our, when the world around us is saying very different things? I want to read from Paul, he's one of the earliest followers of Jesus, and he's um, writing to a church that's in a very similar situation culturally that we're in. Roman culture in Paul's day was more sexually confused um, than our culture today. You could see murals of um, orgies, and on people's tables you'd see water jugs with images of, of men having sex with boys. And um, it's no wonder that Paul needed to write to the church and engage with this, help them navigate. How do we live differently in our world? So we're going to look this morning at Colossians 4, 5, and 6. And this is what it says. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There are three clear messages that Paul wants the church to understand. And Simon and I are going to kind of take it in turns unpacking those today.
1: Simon. Thanks, Colin. So Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders so that you might be able to answer each person. So the the context of outsiders is those who aren't following Christ. Paul's saying you need incredible wisdom to walk out this, uh, this, not just sexual ethic, but all of our ethics, all of our life with Christ. With those around those who don't know Christ, but also he, he says it's in the context of asking questions, so that you might have an answer to those who uh, are, are able to who are asking you who are asking you questions. And and you know the the greatest um, most repeated prayer of mine right now is, "Give me wisdom, God. Give me wisdom." I don't know about you, if you have the same prayer, God, give me wisdom. And particularly around this uh, theme of sexual ethics, wor- working it out in the world around us, we need incredible wisdom. And so there's lots to say on this theme of wisdom, walking in wisdom, but I think that's the first. Thing that Paul, uh, that the Lord would have us look at today. And a couple of areas, I would say firstly, we've got to have wisdom to know what people mean by the questions that they're asking. We get asked lots of questions, particularly around this whole issue of sexual ethics. Let me give you one example. Is it sinful to be gay? You might have had that question in your school or your workplace. Is it sinful to be gay? You know, it might surprise you, but I would be very slow. In fact, I would not answer that question with a yes or no answer. You've heard all I've said on homosexuality and all I believe the Bible says, but I would still be very slow to answer yes or no because it is a complex question that needs real sensitivity when you answer it. I would always ask, what do you mean by the word gay? Because the word gay has got a number of different nuances to it. You could be thinking about gay desire. You could be thinking about gay as identity or gay as an action. And all three of them would have a different answer to the question. Let me just unpack it. So gay could be talking about gay as a desire. It could mean uh, in the context of I have same-sex attraction. And if that's what it means, well, desire in itself is not sinful, the Bible is quite clear that our desires can lead to sin, but the desire in itself is not sinful. We have to be really clear on, on, on that point. All of us have desires that may lead to good or may lead to evil, that may, may lead to right or might lead to sin. We all have desires. We're born with many of those desires. And, and we have to understand that d- the desire itself is not sin. I, I was driving to work one day and a lady uh, pulled out in front of me, uh, cut me up in, in traffic. And so I you know, just tooted the horn to let her know I was there. It wasn't a great as if just a little toot. She was a grandma. She gave me the finger. <laughs> she flipped me the bird with her grandkids in the back. I mean, I was so shocked. I was so shocked. I just wasn't expecting it. And, and uh, I, <laughs> I, I had a desire it was to flip her the finger back again. <laughs> but I realized this desire was not a godly desire. I resisted that desire. We all have desires, that, many of which are not godly, that do not lead to right behaviour. Uh, and so we have to resist them. And, and, and Hebrews really unpacks this. It says, Jesus was like in every way, he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. So the Bible is quite clear there is a difference between temptation or desire and, and sin. The two are different. And we have to be clear on that. If it's, is it simple to be gay might mean, is it simple to have same-sex attraction? And in which case, the answer is no. Because we all have attractions and desires and some of them are godly and some of them are not. Uh, and if God said that they're not ones that we should follow, then if we follow them it's sin. But if we don't, if we resist them, then it's not sin. If it's sinful to be gay, might be talking is it simple to be gay, might be talking about gay identity. Gay as an identity. You know, I've got some Christian friends who, who have same-sex attraction uh, and they don't believe that it's uh, appropriate or godly to have gay sex. So they don't have gay sex, but they still have same-sex attraction. And they don't call themselves gay because they say, as Jeanette was making the point, uh, my identity is first in Christ, I am first a child of God. I'm made in the image of God. That's my identity. It goes underneath everything else. And and, and I don't want to put any word in front of Christian. I don't want to be anything Christian. I, 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 I don't want to use that phrase. I've got other friends who are Christians. They're same-sex attracted. Again, they don't believe that gay sex is right. But they do use the term gay. They do call themselves gay. And their reasoning is different. Their reasoning is, look, I, I want to be able to reach out to the culture around me. I've got many friends who are living gay lifestyles. And I want Want to be able to reach them and gay is a word that they understand I want to be able to connect with them so they use gay in that sense so we've got to be careful about this gay might mean a number of different things it might mean desire it might mean identity and if it means identity you might have to understand what people mean by identity but I don't think in itself it's inherently sinful and third of course gay might mean in terms of action Someone who's either in a, 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 a multiple uncommitted relationships and having gay sex or someone who is in one committed relationship. And the, as we laid out the Bible, it's quite clear that God loves everyone, loves each one, of, uh, each one of us and he loves gay people. But he does say that gay sex is outside of his design and his will. So as far as God's concerned, only the third one is is it involving any sin and so i would be very cautious to, if someone asked me the question is gay is it sinful to be gay how i would answer that question i would probably ask them a question what do they mean about uh, by gay uh, to be honest i'd probably ask them the question what do they understand by sin because If they didn't even believe in sin, I would wonder why they cared what I thought was sin. And maybe there's something deeper going on. Why would anyone who doesn't believe in sin care whether I think something is sin or whether the Bible thinks something is sin or not sin? There might be something deeper going on in this conversation. So firstly, we've got to understand what people mean by the questions that they ask, and that's just one illustration. But as I said in a previous talk, asking questions about people's questions is a powerful, powerful uh, um, skill that we need to learn in in our day. The second is this, we need to know a wisdom as to who is asking the questions. You know, um, There are a number of things going on in our society today. One is that there are individuals and families who are wrestling through these whole questions of sexuality, sexual identity, uh, gender, all of this stuff. They're wrestling it through. It's personal, it's painful, it's their story. They're working it out. And, and as we've said before, the, the, the love and the care and the tenderness and the grace we've got to have towards those individuals and families is, is beyond anything. I think the church has learned to model. We've got to learn more to model the ways of Jesus. And Caroline will speak about, a bit more about that in a moment. But secondly, there is a, a, a militant liberal ideology which is trying to drive an agenda of sexuality across the whole of our society. And this ideology will not be satisfied until every person who disagrees with a liberal sexual morality is driven out of public life or at least silence. And I'm sure you've witnessed that going on in the news. It's, it's everywhere, this, this aggressive agenda. And it's at work in, in, in our education system, it's at work in media, it's at work in politics, it's at work in, probably in your workplace and and so those there's these two things going on at the same time I, I was chatting to one of our young people who is in the kind of 15 to 18 age group and I was asking him when he's known as a Christian in his school I said when people ask you about homosexuality in in your school which they do a lot when they ask you, out of 10, how many times would you say it's, it's, it's they're, they're basically trying to trap you? They're basically trying to make you look stupid, say something that will make you look stupid, uh, say something that will make you look like a homophobe. They're, they're trying to trap you. And at what percentage of the time, how many times out of 10 would you say, no, they're genuinely interested in understanding the Christian sexual ethic? He said, oh, no question. Nine times out of 10, they're trying to trap me. <laughs> Nine times out of 10, it's just a quick, you know, jibe to try and bait me in some way. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. Anyone else experiencing that, that world? We are living in a culture with an increasing amount of entrapment, not just on this issue, but on lots of issues, where there's a few who want to just shout outrage and offence at any given opportunity. They don't, they don't want meaningful dialogue. They just want to shut people down who disagree with them. And even to express a sexual ethic that's different to the liberal agenda is just offensive, to, just you know, beyond anything that people can bear. And, and I'm not trying to be a doomsday prophet here. I'm not trying to paint the picture uh, too darkly, but I just am wanting to hold up the realities of which I know many of you will be living in, and increasingly I believe that we're living in. Here's the issue. Who is asking the question is critical. Who is asking the question? And I would say broadly there are three groups of people. There are those who are trying to trap. There are those who are trying to trap or trick or just make us look stupid as Christians, make us look like homophobes, or that, those group. There's, there's also those who are just unready. They're actually, they've got no understanding of, Christian, uh, of Christianity at all. They don't have an understanding of God or Jesus or his love or his grace. They're just not ready to hear about the Christian sexual ethic. And the third group are the genuine seekers. They're those who've got a genuine foundation, and understanding of Christianity, and they really do want to understand. There's three different groups of people. And the reality is you cannot answer these questions the same way to each of the groups. The, The groups have different needs that need addressing. And to answer the questions the same way, it will make no sense to their ears. And Jesus lived in the same environment that we do. If you look through the Gospels, you see he was aware that there were three different groups of people around him. Those who were going to trap, those who were just unready, and those who were genuine seekers. You know, in, in our context, sexual morality is the hot potato, as it has been at various points in history, not always. Certainly in Jesus' day, it, it wasn't the hot potato. It was not, as we spoke about before, it was a fairly settled issue. I tell you what was a hot potato in Jesus' day was the Roman occupation of Israel, <laughs> The Roman occupation of Israel was the hot potato of Jesus' day. And there was massive disagreement among the Jews, uh, among Jesus' colleagues and friends over this issue. And there's this story in Mark 12 where two groups actually come to Jesus as one group. It's one group it presents, but it's actually two groups. It's the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, what you've got to understand is the Herodians and the Pharisees hated each other. Because the Pharisees were totally against the Roman occupation and they were wanting to drive the Romans out by any means possible. They were, they were religiously wanting to guard Israel. Well the Herodians, I'm sure they didn't like the, Roman, the, the Herodians didn't like the Roman occupation, but to be honest, they were complicit with it. They were underpinning it, they were part of the, the governmental structure that they were kind of working. and these groups hated each other, they were, had different ends, but they were united in one thing. they both hated Jesus. <laughs> They both hated Jesus and everything that he stood for. And so it says they came to him as one group and it says to trap him. And this is what they said. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Ever felt buttered up by anybody? (laughs) Ever thought you were about to walk into a trap? There's one right there. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Genuine question. Do you see the dilemma? If Jesus answers yes, you should pay taxes, then the people will hate him. The very people who are, who are coming to him will hate him because they'll say, well, he just, he's just supporting the Roman Empire. But if he says no, then they'll just report him to the Roman authorities and they'll execute him. He is on the horns of a massive dilemma in this question. And he's got a crowd of people around him waiting for his answer. Anyone been in that situation? You've been asked the question, you've got a crowd. Jesus is in that situation and his very life is on the line. This is what he says, but knowing their hypocrisy, wisdom, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which was a coin, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. You can imagine everyone was like, oh, where did he pull that out from? They marveled at him. You see, they want to talk about Roman occupation. They want to talk about politics, but he wants to talk about God. They want to talk about one thing, but he wants to talk about another. It's genius. Jesus knew there's these three different groups. Some are come to trap. Some are just not ready. Some are genuine seekers. I want to suggest to you that in the public space, we need to pray for the wisdom of heaven. And we need to know that God is going to give it to us. That he is going to give us his wisdom to walk this out. Because not every question about sexual morality is a genuine question. Sometimes it's from someone who's trying to trap us. Sometimes it's someone who just has got no understanding of any other framework for Christianity. They're just not ready, and sometimes it is a genuine seeker. Notice this story is is from the first group. They're they're trying to trap Jesus, and he uses their agenda to actually promote his agenda. (laughs) He's got a message that he wants to communicate about God, and he pivots from their question to his own agenda of what he wants to say. What about the second group? What about the group that aren't ready? Those that, that are unready, who are genuinely asking questions, but 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 haven't got a, a real foundation or an understanding you know there's some things the reality is in life there are some things that we are just not ready to hear we know this as parents don't we sometimes we communicate with sometimes our kids ask questions and they're just not ready to hear the answer it's the same in the world as around us the problem is often in public space christians feel like well a genuine question deserves a genuine answer not always People aren't always ready to hear. This is what Jesus says to his own disciples. There are many things I'd like to teach you, but there are some things you are just not ready to hear you're not ready to hear them. And we need to live in that reality. Much of our society is in this second group. They just aren't ready to hear about Christian sexual ethics. Why? Because they've got no understanding of the goodness of God. They've got no understanding of the love of Christ. They've got no understanding that there is an eternal realm, that this life is temporary. They've got no foundation on which to put sexual ethics. And if you just give them sexual ethics without any of that stuff, they'll just think that God hates them, that he's he's a, a spoil sport and a killjoy. They won't understand the framework within which our Christian sexual ethics sits. We've got to think carefully before answering a question to those who are unwe- unready. Now, uh, I was talking about this um, a while ago and someone was, qu- was saying, Simon, I get the principle, but how? He said, I'm being hammered in my workplace every day on the shop floor with these questions. How do I answer then? So I thought, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I thought, how, uh, let me just give you some sample answers. This is how I would answer some of these questions. And particularly if I thought that the group coming to me were, were either the person talking to me was either out to trap me, make me look stupid, or they just weren't ready, which to be honest is the majority of people I would say who are asking questions. Here's some sample answers that I think, I don't know whether this will help you or not, if it's wise or not, but anyway, I'm going for it. There's, here's, a, here's some sample answers. What about this one? Do you think gay sex is sinful? Do you think gay sex is sinful? That question's been put. You know, I've already said I would start with questions and I would ask them some questions about their question, but let's say that, that we've got past that point. I would say this, I think lots of things are sinful, but the main message that I would want everyone to know and certainly every gay person to know is that God loves them, <laughs> that he sent his son to die for them, that he has got a hope and a future for them, that his love was so incensed and sacrificial that he sent Jesus to die for them. That's how I would answer Answer that question. What about this one? Why are Christians so homophobic? Now, if you're asked that question, I'd say, first, don't be defensive. It's an aggressive question that's asked a lot at the moment. Why are Christians so homophobic? This is what I would say. I would say, listen, a phobia is a fear or a hatred of something. But the thing is, Jesus taught us as Christians to love even our enemies. And he said that his love, perfect love, drives out fear. So as Christians, we have got no reason to hate or fear anyone. We are called to love everyone. And, and that's how we should respond, I think, to that question. What about this? Are you saying that gay people have to change? I would say something like, do you know what? I'm saying that everyone has to change. <laughs> we all have to change. We all have something, things we have to change from. We all have things that we have to turn away from if we genuinely want to follow Christ. We all have to change. Do you think trans people are wrong about their identity? I think we're all wrong about our identity, <laughs> I think until we meet Jesus, not one person knows truly who they are. And that's what my story would be. I didn't know who I was until I met Christ. And then when you meet Jesus, it's from that place that you realise who you are and who you are called to be. I know that's helpful to give you some sample answers, but I hope you see where I'm going and why I'd approach that. And some might say, well, you're just dodging the question. You're just trying to duck the question, Simon. Well, am I? Am I? Or am I giving an appropriate question to those, particularly those first two groups, someone who's trying to trap or someone who just isn't ready to hear the full story? You see, the problem is there's so much emotion, there's so much pain, there's so much damage being done over this subject. And to be honest, some of that by Christians who've answered unwisely. I really believe we need to listen to God with real wisdom in our day. And, and the third group, the genuine seekers, you know, someone you've been in a relationship with who's genuinely wanting to know, understand the Christian ethic, wants to know the heart of God. They've understood something about the love of God. They've understood that he's not some tyrant, that he's so, so good, that all things work together for good for those who uh, are called according to his promise. They've understood some of the foundations of the Christian faith then probably I would take them through the framework that we painted in the first week, that that our sexuality is sacred, that it's scarred, that we all need a saviour, but it's also meant to be a signpost. We tried to package that in a way that you guys perhaps could learn it and and, uh, memorise parts of it to use for those that are genuinely seeking and want to understand Christian ethics. Listen, lots more we could say, but the main point is this. We need wisdom. And Paul's saying, walk in wisdom. And the promise that Christ gives each one of us is that he will give us wisdom if we ask for it. Caroline.
0: So Paul says we need to walk in wisdom. And um, I was just laughing kind of thinking about this week Simon and me were cycling along and we were literally like practicing those questions you know role-playing asking each other those questions because we want to be prepared with an, with an answer and I don't know about you but for me it doesn't come naturally <laughs> and I'm one of those who when somebody asks me an aggressive question I'm like oh, I'm not homophobic you know what I mean I just want to come back fighting and that just isn't wise so we've been practicing so we walk with wisdom and the second thing he says is um, let your speech Always be gracious. The apostle Peter says something really similar in 1 Peter. He says, "But But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Your speech can't be gracious if your heart isn't. And your answer can't be gentle if your heart isn't full of respect. Both Paul and Peter are calling us, us to lean in to grace, to really lean in to grace. Primarily for us as followers of Jesus, this is a heart issue. Jesus says it in Luke 6, what you say flows from your heart. So what's the picture here? Our mouths are like a tap. And it's, uh, the tap is connected to a water tank, I was once on holiday and I went to get a glass of water and I turned on the, on the tap and out spurted like all this brown gunk. You know, it was undrinkable. And did I look at the tap and think there was a problem with the tap or blame the tap? No, I knew it wasn't the tap, but I knew it was the water tank that was connected to the tap where the problem was. So here's the question. If my mouth is a tap, what's feeding it? You know, some time ago, we had, um, in one of our kids' schools, we had an extreme activist coming into the school um, to speak to our kids, and when I read the letter about it, um, immediately I was filled with just fear and anger, and um, I, was, I was afraid because I was thinking, what, what are they going to be teaching my kids, and I felt sort of powerless to, um, to, do it, you know, to do anything about it, to protect my kids from views that I knew I strongly disagreed with. And um, I was sharing this with a friend whose kids also were in the same school. And, um, and she said, oh, I just wanna invite the activists to dinner while they're in town. And I was like, man, that contra- contrasts you know, my fear and anger and her like, love and family and let's bring them in. You know? And I was so convicted. And yes, we did feel like it was right to contact the school and share our concerns with them in an honoring, gracious, wise way, and to help our kids, empower them, and how to filter what they were going to be hearing. Um, But at the same time, I realized that I needed to really go deeper in understanding that just because I don't agree with somebody 100%, I can still show them love, and, you know, that's what, that's what Jesus has called us to. Jesus is 100% love and 100% truth. That's what he models. And I just, um, in, that, in that whole um, story, I just, God really started to soften my heart. I started to realize that fear cannot be the biggest driver in my heart. Otherwise, that's what's gonna come out of my mouth, and that's what's gonna come out of my actions. It has to be grace, So if we want our words to flow full of grace, um, then our hearts have to be overflowing with it. Have we really understood the grace of God? Do we know his grace? This word means undeserved favor. Has he found it? Have we found it? He's found us. He's rescued us. And more than just understanding this, have we really received it? Have we received his grace? Have we really leaned into his grace personally? Have we been enveloped in his arms of grace? It's amazing. We don't deserve his favor, but he gives it anyway. And I remember I started to get this. Um, it was around my sexual um, sin, actually. And I grew up learning about the Bible, and I knew that God's best for me was to keep, fire, um, keep the fire of sex in that safe fireplace of marriage. Um, but I didn't live that way. And during my um, university years, I was super insecure, and I was just looking for affirmation from men, and I, I made loads of mistakes. And by the time I met Simon, I, um, I was, you know, I had done all sorts of things I wish I hadn't done, and I was carrying loads of shame, and I was hiding, and I felt really dirty and um, unworthy on the inside, and the father started pointing to this, and he led me on this like, really painful but beautiful journey of um, deciding I was going to tell the whole story to a trusted friend, and I did that. And then after that, I told Simon. And, and then after that, actually the week before I got married, I told my dad. <laughs> I'm not saying you've got to like air all your dirty laundry to your dad, but um, that's what I wanted to do, and so I did. And in all three of those situations, each time I finished the story, what I received was grace. They didn't reject me, they didn't judge me, they didn't look at me disgusted, but they hugged me and they told me they loved me and they thanked me for sharing and then they pointed me to Jesus. And you know when I went to Jesus and I told him I'm sorry when I repented, he forgave me and he completely washed me of all my filth. And so a week after the third conversation when I told my dad when he walked me down the aisle, I felt like man, I should be in this white dress. I am completely washed, I am completely clean. It was stunning. What's gonna help us navigate this complex issue is making sure that our hearts are full of grace. We've gotta stay connected to our own stories, remembering that we're all trophies of grace. We don't stand on our own merit, but we stand on the grace of Jesus. Do you believe that, really believe that God has boundless grace towards you? What about your gay friend or your transgender friend? Do you believe that's true for them? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're gay or you're same-sex attracted. Maybe, maybe you don't fully know, but it's true. It's true for you. Yes, God says some things that we do are sinful. Our lying, our greed, our sexual activity outside of marriage, But he has grace for us, and he has love for us. And he calls us to him because of his love and by the power of his love. Remember, Paul says in this verse, let your grace always, sorry, let your speech always be gracious. Once we've leaned into grace, we've been transformed by grace. Grace is what starts to pour out of our mouths. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. And that word always is tough. Um, I don't know if you were taught, don't ever say always and never. (laughs) Always is hard. That's a hard mark to hit. And we all make mistakes, don't we? We say things that we're not meant to say. But I think the word always is here to show us to take incredible care with our words. I'm a creative person, I love creating, I love baking, I love designing and, um, and gardening. And this week, um, or the past week, my favorite day was when I went to the garden center, I look forward to it all year, um, to buy the plants for my summer pots. And I go to like three or four different garden centers and I'm like comparing things and looking at what plants look good together. And um, I just love it. And my favorite plant that I buy every year is called um, Lysimachia. And that probably means nothing to most of you. I even had to look up the name. But I love it because it's like got these acid green leaves and it really trails over the pot and it makes anything that stands next to it like really pop because it's such a vibrant color. I love it. And I love creating. But one thing that amazes me about God, he's a creator too. But he creates with his words. It's incredible. I have to get my hands dirty, but all he has to do is speak. His word is that powerful. And you know, the amazing thing is, is that we're created in his image and our words are powerful as well. That's why Paul says, let your words always be gracious. Isn't that challenging? If you were walking through life carrying a stick of dynamite um, and you'd take real care, wouldn't you? Because it could explode at any point. (laughs) Imagine people couldn't see the dynamite. They just um, observed you. After a while of watching you walk through life quite carefully, they would say, Well, she's a careful person. And I think that happens as well as we realize how powerful our words are powerful to give life and powerful to destroy. When we realize this, we start to talk with care. Just like Paul says, we think more before we speak. We're like that person carrying dynamite. When we realize our words have power to to create or power to destroy. You know, I've prayed with several people who um, have been in pain for decades over a few words spoken with them, to them. I hate you. I wish you were never born. You are too much. You are not enough. I've also spoken to countless people who have been released through a few words. I forgive you. I love you. I love the sound of your voice. Jesus loves you, he died for you. As, as I've read stories about gay people, as I've talked to them, what I've found, is, what I've been really struck by, is the power that our words have. Power to, to push them towards Jesus, or power to push them away. What would it be like for the King's Arms to be a place where we spoke graciously, we had words of grace for everyone? In particular, I think we need to learn how to show grace, real grace, um, when people, to people when they speak to us about their sexuality. This is a real gift when people trust us with this, and we need to handle it with care. We need to learn to, to listen and listen and listen again before making any statements. We need to learn to ask questions about their journey to get to see who they really are and where they came from, how they got here. We need to learn to express commitment to them as a person just like in my story those three people did. We've all had moments in life where we're confiding in someone and we desperately need to know that they're gonna love us no matter what we say. That reassurance of love no matter what is so powerful and that's how Jesus loves us. Yes, he calls us to follow him and this does mean leaving behind what he calls sin but it's his love that empowers us to do that. When we sacrifice, he always promises that reward—that his reward will be greater than what we left behind. Just like Jeanette said, we leave behind the bone because he's the stake. So Paul calls us here to walk with wisdom and to lean into grace. So.
1: So good, Caroline. I just can't underline that enough, that people, people knew who were around Jesus. They knew he was uncompromising in his stance against sin, that he uh, was not uh, compromised in any way. And yet, at the same time, they wanted to be around him. Why? Because they encountered the grace of God. He embodied grace. And I, you know, my dream is to build a church like that. My dream is to build churches that look like that. Just read that verse again. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, make them the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt, so you may know how to answer each person. Walk with wisdom, lean into grace. Season with salt. You know, salt in the ancient word, in the ancient world uh, was a preservative. That's what it was used for to preserve meat and other things that they didn't want to go off because the, the sun was so hot. They had no refrigeration. Salt was life-giving and essential to survival. And so Paul's saying, look, you, you, you've got to lead with grace. You, you've got to ask for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, but you also must not be afraid to let your words be full of salt. That your, your words have a, a, a salty, a powerful effect in preserving society, in prever- preserving people from destruction. And it's critical that we understand that. This goes part of this. And as I said a few weeks ago, there's numbers of different ways that we can do that, I think. But it's so important that as Christians, we are not intimidated into silence in this day, that we are ready to stand and to speak out where we need to. You know, one area I feel passionate about is we should be leading the way in combating and speaking against verbal or physical abuse against gay or transgender people. You know, the church has been too silent on this issue and we need to stand up and to speak when people are bullied in our schools or in our workplaces. We need to be those who are willing to stand up. And, and it's not fun standing up to bullies, but we need to be those who are willing to do so. Just because we disagree with someone's sexual ethic does not mean to say that we can stand by and watch them be bullied for it. You know that Christians, I said it before, but Christians are, I think 2016, uh, there were over 50,000, probably closer to 100,000 Christians who were martyred for their faith. One every six minutes. We of all people, that Christianity is the most persecuted religious group on the planet. We of all people should know what it means to be persecuted and bullied. And we should also know what it means to stand against bullies, to to stand against those who are uh, abusing people for their beliefs. So we should let our salt come out in that way. We also need to stand against, though, the view that the Christian sexual ethic is harmful or or it's restrictive in some way. Uh, Matt Lee Anderson, who was quoting Neil Shenvey, says this, "'We should wholeheartedly affirm that oppression is wrong and that harm should be avoided.'" With that understood, we're then compelled to point out that what constitutes oppression and harm will depend entirely on what is true about reality. Seatbelts take away our freedom and vaccines make our arms sore. But liberating people from seatbelts and vaccines brings mild short-term happiness at the cost of extreme long-term suffering. In the same way, to argue that a Christian sexual ethic is harmful or restrictive is both a misunderstanding. To, is both to misunderstand the Christian sexual ethic and to assume that Christianity is false. If Christianity is true, then obedience to God's will. The obedience to God sorry will produce joy in the present and joy for eternity if Christianity is true then obedience to God will produce joy in the present and joy for eternity it's a powerful quote which I messed up unfortunately a powerful quote Steve Wilson and I were, were recently uh, went to talk with uh, a leading figure in our, our town who'd heard some things about King's arms that were homophobic and other things and we went to, ch- to chat to him and and the, this is what we said basically look we are the king's arms we embrace everyone we serve the town in in so many ways and it, we serve people from every belief and every orientation we are the king's arms we embrace everyone that's what we do it's what Jesus did and that's what we do but we also said look our, our sexual ethic may be different to others but we're also building a society and we want to build a society where we can love and respect and serve one another even if we disagree and there are some in society that don't want that they think everyone's got to agree and I would say no no we want to build a society where we can love and respect one another even if we disagree And that was our argument to this person. Lastly, we need to be sought in standing up to a liberal sexual ideology that's creating a culture of outrage offence for anyone who disagrees with it. This may cost us, but it's worth fighting for. It's worth speaking graciously and lovingly against that ideology because it's so toxic for society, not just on this issue, but on so many other issues we need to learn to communicate, and lots of things you could say, but we need to learn to communicate that that identity is deeper than sexuality. It's deeper than race. It's deep, deeper than gender. Identity, our core identity, is that we are made in the image of God. And we need to learn to communicate that because that message is getting erased in society. We need to learn to communicate that a healthy society, as I said, should be able to listen, respect, and serve one another, even where we disagree. You know, artists need to paint. Movie makers amongst us need to produce movies. Those who write need to write. Those who speak need to speak. We we need to get creative in the ways that we're communicating these messages because the messages that are going out there, the messages that are everywhere are exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. And so I want to inspire and release the artists amongst you to understand the core messages that we need to communicate and to get on with communicating whatever the cost may be. So much more we could say on this But we need to let our words be seasoned with salt. And Caroline's going to finish off.
0: Just to wrap up, I remember a couple uh, years ago, a while back, walking into a building, and they had a display up, and um, in the middle it said sexuality, and around the display there were pictures, faces of different celebrities, and across one of the faces it said bisexual, and across one it said transgender, and across one it said um, gay, and it was all these different sexualities and these labels across their faces. And it absolutely broke my heart. I just stood at this display and cried because aren't these people worth more than just their sexuality? Is that all they are to the world? You know, Jesus designed, he designed our identity. He affirms our identity. He calls it out. He's 100% love and 100% truth. We've seen this morning how Jesus handled it when, when people tried to trap him. And we've seen how he handled it through Jeanette's story and through my, dis- my story, um, how, he, how he handles people who, who themselves are trapped. He spoke truth, unwavering truth, with outrageous love. The great news is that his spirit is in us. His wisdom is upon us. His grace is available for us. With him, we get to create life and we get to speak words of grace that are seasoned with salt. So let's follow Jesus. You guys want to stand up with us. We're going to pray for you. We're going to ask Jeanette to come up and pray for us.